The following audio is from Missio Day Church in Asheville, North Carolina. We exist for maturing and multiplying disciples in Asheville and beyond for the glory of God. For more resources from Missio Day or to partner with us on mission, visit mdcavl.org. Morning, church. Welcome to Missio Day. If you have some extra seats around you, I'm going to ask you to bump in just a little bit. Um, maybe you can leave one, but definitely don't be leaving two seats as there are still some more people filing in. If you're new with us, welcome to church. My name is Ryan. I'm one of the elders here at Missio. Um, also, if you're new, there are connect cards in the back of your seat backs. And I would love to just get to know you a little bit, find out a little bit about yourself, get you plugged in and connected here at Missio Day Church. If you're new at Missio, you may not be familiar that we are in the book of Jonah. Um, if I can have the lights come up in the back there, it'd be great. I'd love to see everybody here. So if you have your Bible, please do turn with me to the book of Jonah. We're going to be in chapter four today, but I want to do a bit of a recap if you uh, haven't been with us up to this point. In chapter one, Jimmy preached, uh, I guess it was three or four weeks ago, we meet Jonah. Jonah is a prophet of God who has been commissioned to go to an enemy land um, to preach the gospel of repentance, the gospel to call them to repent of their evil. And Jonah immediately hears this from God and says, no thanks. And he gets on a boat headed for Tarshish. God sends a storm in. Um, Everybody on on the boat is completely freaked out. And God unveils a series of events that actually calls Jonah back around. Um, We'll see that that Jonah actually got on that boat and went in the opposite direction because he didn't share God's heart for the people of Nineveh that God had called him to go and save. So God pursues him. He sends this storm, this supernatural and miraculous event, um, but it's a mercy of God that he then in chapter 2 brings a fish to swallow Jonah up. And that was when Billy came uh, a couple of weeks ago and he preached about Jonah in the belly of the whale, and the experience that he has there with God. And God kind of reveals back to himself, back to Jonah, who he is, who Jonah is in light of God. And if you remember Billy talking about God shaking Jonah and trying to get this gospel that he knew in his head to shake down to his heart. And he does that. And Jonah prays in chapter two, and he says this, says, God, hear me. I remember your holiness. I remember my sin and I repent. Salvation belongs to the Lord, and I renew my vow. I'm going to go to Nineveh, and I'm going to, I'm going to preach this gospel of repent or this good news of repentance. Immediately, God tells the fish, vomit Jonah up onto the shore of Nineveh um, after he had kind of got this glimpse and maybe a bit of a heart change and seeing God's compassion for these people. So Jonah gets to Nineveh, and I think he has an immediate reaction of regret. He shows up, and he sees these people, and he's like, yeah, I'm, this, isn't, this is definitely not what I wanted to do. But he goes and he reluctantly preaches. And if you remember in chapter 3, he preaches like nine words. And he's like, repent or you're going to be destroyed by God. And he leaves in Nineveh immediately. And what we see is that God actually comes through and saves the entire city and uses this measly little sermon, if you will, that Jonah preaches to show his compassion for this lost city of Nineveh. And now we come to chapter 4. And I don't know if you guys have read chapter 4. I know Jimmy talked this this chapter up at, at week one as is going to be this penultimate uh, chapter that we come to. But if you've read this, this is a pretty bizarre chapter. And I kind of think of it as this. I think at chapter three, we maybe could close the book, say happily ever after. God sent Jonah. He re- 
sent him to Nineveh. The people of Nineveh repented. All these people are saved. End of story. The credits roll. But if you've ever gone to like a Marvel movie at the theater and like all the credits roll and the story's done, and then all of a sudden like the camera or the screen opens back up and there's another scene, it's like a, a deleted scene. Um, that's kind of, I think, where, where we're at with, with chapter four. It starts weird. It ends even weirder. But it's, it's going to actually complete the entire arc of this book. So that's where we're going to pick it up. If you have your Bibles, let's join, uh, jump in at Jonah chapter 4, verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, Lord, O oh Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out from the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, for, to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not have pity on Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the opportunity to look to your word this morning and to see a message um, that's going to come full circle, that's going to show us that you have a heart of compassion for lost people. And God, I pray that as you, as you showed Nona, uh, Jonah in this in this particular instance, that that's important for, for you, that you grab hold of our hearts and that we see this the way you see it. Father, I pray that you would speak through me, use my words to bring some sort of clarity to this bizarre chapter. But God, I pray that at the end of the day that we would see your glory and that we would give you praise for you are the God of salvation. Jesus, in your name we pray, amen. Right? Jimmy pumped this thing up, but I, I don't know if he had actually read chapter four when he said that. So, <laughs> We're going to talk about a few emotions. Um, obviously, we're going to start with anger. If you're a note taker, we're going to talk about anger for just a second here, because what we see is immediately, right in chapter three, the very last line is that all of these people of Nineveh are saved. And Jonah's first reaction is he's furious. And like I said, this, this scene opens up with him um, angry. And I, when I first read this, and I'm sure you do too, I feel like it's a bizarre level of anger. It's, it, it seems way too strong. In fact, in the original language, it says it was evil. What Jonah witnessed was evil to Jonah, that God saved these people. And even the last chapter, I mean, Nineveh repented of evil. It's the same exact word. Nineveh repents of evil, and Jonah says, 
that's evil that they repented. And that seems a lot more harsh than I think it needs to be. But I think what we're seeing here is that Jonah has set himself up as superior in some way, and that he's looking at these Ninevites in some sort of superiority. And it contrasts this emotion that he has in his heart versus what he knows in his head about God. And I think it kind of shows his cards a little bit here. Because in, fact, in, chapter, in verse 2, he knows to pray. I mean, it's this angry yelling prayer, but, but he still goes to God and, and yells at him. And he says, I knew this is what you were going to do. I knew you were a God that saves. I knew you were slow, slow to anger. And I knew that you would have compassion on these people if I went. And we're kind of starting to see this disconnect, right, between what Jonah knows about God, and then when God actually moves, Jonah just, he doesn't like it. It hasn't, it hasn't affected him in that way. Because in chapter 2, verse 8, um, it was the steadfast love of God that gave him thanksgiving. When he was in the belly of that fish, that's what he prayed out, that the steadfast love of God has given him reason to thank, give thanks. And now that steadfast love for other people is what's making him bizarrely mad. Um, this isn't your average hate, right? Um, if you know me, you know I hate bananas. It's a, probably an odd hate, but it's not like this hate. I mean, it kind of is, but it's not. I, it, this isn't just like one day he woke up and just hated the Ninevites. That he just like, I can't believe God saved these people. Um, that said, this is a much deeper-seated, this is a much longer-lasting, and it's a much different, I think, kind of hate um, that actually may not be as far-fetched as we, we might think. Jonah, if you can look at this this way, Jonah had really good theology about God. He knew all the right things to say, and we're going to find out in just a second, this was second nature to him. He knew it all in his head, but he had a bad heart. And when God actually started working and doing things that he knew God was supposed to do, he didn't know how to respond to that. And he's so shook that in, chat, in verse 3, he says, just kill me now. Like, again, I think a bit of an overreaction, but we're going to see Jonah tends to be a bit of a drama queen when it comes to what God's doing here. And I, I like to think that God looked at him and was like, you mad, bro? <laughs> I mean, what gives, right? God, God's actually, this is, this is, we're going to see you later, but get, this is God's first pass at trying to open up a conversation with Jonah to say, God asks a question and says, what are you mad about? I mean, are you right to be angry? And like a, uh, like a little kid, Jonah storms off. He doesn't answer God. He hightails it out of town, and he goes and sets up camp on a hill overlooking the city. And if you can just picture this, I like to have word pictures in my head. But he just goes out there. He sets up a tent. They call it a booth. It's like a kind of a mini tent. Opens up this bag of flaming hot Cheetos, gets a chair out, and he starts looking at Nineveh and waiting for God to just drop a nuke on it. I, he went and preached and said, God's going to destroy this city if you don't repent. And you've got 40 days to do it. And then he leaves. And his assumption is, it's not real. And so he sits there on top of this hill waiting for God to just come and kill these people. I think it's time to take a real quick time out and say, what is it that's making him so mad, right? I mean, what is it that has got this guy so fired up, a prophet of God, nonetheless, right? This is somebody that God has appointed. He had a job, and his job was to preach a message of repentance. 
what has got him so hot under the collar? I'm going to use the word racist. Um, and it may seem like a strange word to use, but um, I don't mean, when I say Jonah is a racist, I don't merely mean the color of people's skin. And I think sometimes we can oversimplify that word. But when I say racist, I'm going to say any sort of superiority whatsoever is a form of racism. So for Jonah, this started a long, long, long time ago. So go back to God's people, the Israelites, in slavery in Egypt. God brings them out of Egypt, across the Red Sea. He gets them in the desert. They wander around in the desert for a little while, meets them at Mount Sinai and says, you're going to be my people. I am setting you guys aside. I have a particular mission for you. And from there, he brings them into the promised land. When they're in promised land, he sets them up kind of in the middle and says, I want you, my people, to be a light to the nations. There's going to be all these surrounding nations, and I want you guys to be the ones that bring the message of repentance to the people all around you. Now, the Israelites did a terrible job at this. You can kind of see this all through the Old Testament when you, when you read, but they failed. Like, they, they kind of did a little bit of it, and they were like, these people are not that great, and they just kind of started to turn in on each other. Um, and the results were that, that the Israelites kind of kept looking at these outside nations saying, they're evil, we don't really want to go there, and they started to recluse a little bit. And so God calls these, these prophets, you see like Isaiah and Jeremiah, and here we have Jonah, others to say, hey, you guys in this kingdom, I want you to, I want you to be preaching to these people. Now I want you to be ministering to the Israelites, but I also want you to be preaching this message to the surrounding nations. Interestingly enough, Jonah is the only one that was asked to leave the, leave the nation of Israel in, the, in that middle and actually go to a foreign land. Now, fast forward a little bit. Um, you see that these prophets didn't have a really great experience even within Israel. In fact, last time we were in Acts, and we're going to pick the Acts up, I think, next week, but um, Stephen, when he's, when he's talking to these Jews, he said, he reminds these Jews, your fathers killed the prophets. Now, we fast forward many more generations, and you see just kind of cycles of this, people being raised in this. Israel had become kind of a racist nation, and they had said, we're chosen by God, and those people aren't, and that's just how that's going to be. And they stopped, they stopped proclaiming the message of good news to the people around them. They stopped witnessing, um, and they started withdrawing further. And so generation after generation, I think we, we maybe just infer that this got worse over time, right? So a little bit of disassociation with the surrounding nations saying, hey, we're not really going to associate with them because they are not chosen by God or they're, they're doing some weird things. Um, that disassociation starts to turn to dislike, like we definitely don't like the way these, things, these people are, are acting. And eventually I think it becomes hatred. And I think it just becomes hatred as we hate what these people are doing and we're going to just completely isolate ourselves and set ourselves apart from them. I, I, think, I think Jonah was probably raised in that. I think that was kind of a cultural um, mindset that they looked at these surrounding nations as a culture and just said, they're not of us. They're not, they're not chosen the way we are chosen. And it was probably years and years of inbred, um, call it nationalism or pride or whatever it was at being this people, but they didn't have eyes for the lost. And so now we get up to where we are now, and God says, hey, I want you to go to Nineveh, and I want you to preach this message of repentance to a nation who is destroying your people. These, these are savages. I mean, they were coming in and attacking, and Jonah's like, no way. You can't save those people. I mean, how messed up are those people? And you want me to actually go there 
and preach to them. And I think that's kind of where his anger is coming from. But I do think we have some things to learn here. Um, I, I don't think this is a, a message on racism, but I do feel like I need to say that still exists, right? I mean, racism still exists in a sense. It does exist on a skin color level. It ex- exists on a socioeconomic level. It also exists on a spiritual level or on a religious level. And I think we'd be, um, I don't think we'd be doing this passage justice if we didn't pay attention to that. That, that we oftentimes have this view of other people, whoever they may be, and feel a sense of, in, in, you know, of superiority or them inferiority for one reason or another. And I think we have to know that God hates that. I mean, God hates that type of racism. And we're going to find out in just a second. The reason is, is because we deserve the same thing that they deserve to begin with. So whether it's something that we're actively doing in our minds, that we're looking at a particular people group and saying, uh, I'm not going to go and minister to them, or I'm, I'm di- I just don't think I'm called to go and, and minister to these people. Or maybe it's passive. You know, I think all of Israel passively ignored Nineveh. They ignored all of these other nations around them, and they didn't necessarily run like Jonah did, um, but they were doing it passively. But either way, God's grieved when we, just, when we don't see people the way he sees people. But another uh, emotion or a feeling, if you will, we're going to look at mercy. Um, and mercy is God not giving us what we deserve. And God loves us enough to teach us and not kill us, like Jonah was even asking for. Um, We're going to look at at verse 6 in just a second here, but the mercy of God that God pours out on Jonah here is hard for me to wrap my head around. I would have slapped him, right? I mean, for him to throw a tantrum like that after what God had done, but God graciously enters down into this conversation. I mean, he, he, he bends low and he enters into a conversation with Jonah because he wants to teach him something. And I think what he wants to teach Jonah here is that he wants him to have a heart of compassion for these people like God does. Now, um, in God's pursuit to set up this teaching scenario with Jonah, we see at least, I think we see at least 10 miracles that God does to pursue Jonah in love in order to teach him this lesson. So starting in chapter 1, we saw the hurl the great wind. Chapter 2, the casting of lots, which seems like a weird thing, but can you imagine they're casting lots and it's like, uh, Bartholomew? And he's like, no, I, this, this is definitely not about me. That, I mean, this is miracle after miracle that God does. Um, the, sea race, uh, ra- the sea ceased from raging. God appoints the giant fish to come and swallow him. He preserves him in that, um, I think Billy called it a, a fish uber. Um, the Lord spoke to the fish. He vomits him out on the, on the shore. And then God relented from the disaster that he was going to bring on the Ninevites. And then here in, verse, or in uh, chapter 4, we're going to see that he appoints a plant. He appoints a worm, and he appoints a scorching east wind. So God's setting up this, this moment to teach Jonah here. Let's look at chapter, or verse 6. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when the, day, when the dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. This guy, 
I mean, God, God definitely could have just zapped him right there and been done with it, right? Um, but God pours out this kindness on him, and he bends down, and he speaks a kind and soft word to him, and he extends grace and mercy. That if I'm being honest, when I was, when I was reading this, when I was studying for this, um, it definitely broke my heart the way I looked at Jonah versus the way God looked at Jonah and the way he dealt with him here. But in verse 6, we see that the plant that God sends to Jonah um, is to show his kindness. I mean, he sends this plant in the midst of Jonah's tantrum. I mean, this anger that he's, he's showing out. Um, and it's important to know that God's first act in response to Jonah's anger is an act of mercy to give him a gift. His first response to Jonah's anger is to give Jonah a gift of mercy. I mean, let's soak that in for just a second because, I mean, we need that, right? We, we throw tantrums and we probably deserve a lot worse than a, a gift that God gives to us. But here we go. Jonah is overjoyed and we finally see some good emotion coming out of Jonah and it just happens to be over a plant, right? Maybe it's a fiddly fig if you're into those. I mean, whatever it was, but this, this plant is pulling at Jonah's heartstrings, right? Um, his emotions are all kinds of out of whack. He's so happy. He's exceedingly joyful. It means so happy he could cry at the plant. And like four verses earlier, he's angry that God saved the lives of 100,000 people. God gave Jonah this gift to demonstrate his kindness to those people that don't deserve it. I mean, the gift of this plant was God's way of saying, Jonah, you don't deserve this, but I'm going to give it to you as an act of kindness. And uh, obviously, Jonah doesn't see that. Um, so then we get the worm and the wind that come up. And these, the worm and the wind, um, there's probably a lot we could say about it, but these two are to remind Jonah and to remind us that, those, that that plant was a gift because he's setting up a way to teach him. Um, I like to think of this plant as, you remember... Um, Heimlich from A Bug's Life, like that real chubby caterpillar. I, I like to think of, uh, I mean, this worm could eat because from, from dawn until the sun actually came up, this one worm apparently devoured this entire tree. Now, there's not a lot of details here, but that's kind of how I like to think of it as Heimlich having a feast that morning. Um, that's not the point of the story. But Jonah obviously knew what Jonah knew of his Old Testament, of all the things that he had read, he certainly knew the book of Job, chapter 1, where it says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord, right? He's already quoted scripture back to God, but no. He says, make it stop. Just kill me so I don't have to watch this. I can't witness. I can't even look at what you're doing here, right? I mean, Jonah just performed maybe what's like the greatest evangelical effort the world's ever seen to this point. He comes in there and within one sentence preaches a message that the entire city gets saved. At the very least, I would say, like, plant a church and just let these people start to grow in their faith. And he does none of that. He throws a tantrum and he just, he, he can't handle it. Now, this is where God starts to teach Jonah. Um, he's been setting the stage. He gave him this plant to remind him of the kindness of the Lord. And then he took it away to say, hey, it's not something that you deserved. It was of a, a, a gift of mine. Let's look at uh, verse 9. Actually, before I get there, we're going to see God asking a couple of questions. And I think this is important for us to look at. When you look at all throughout Scripture, we see that when God asks a question, it's God's way of entering into a conversation 
to teach you something. When God is in the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve have sinned and God asks, where are you? He's not asking, where are you? He's giving them an opportunity to respond and open up a conversation or a dialogue with God. We see this all throughout Scripture. Whenever God asks a question, he's looking to teach something. So um, I think I can ask, I ask questions with sarcasm and, and probably some meanness, right? Like, hey, Bill, is that, you sure that's the right way to hold that screwdriver? Okay, yeah. That's not how God's asking this question to, Noah, to Jonah. Chapter, or verse 9, I'm sorry. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? He said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. This is his third death wish, by the way. Um, I, I don't think he values his life or anybody else's at this point. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 100,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? <laughs> oh, we'll get to that in a minute. So he repeats this question to Jonah. Uh, the first time Jonah ignores him, he doesn't even uh, respond. Again, his, this is not like he's mad that they forgot his Chick-fil-A sauce in his bag, you know? Like, this is a kill-me anger. I've, I don't know... I don't know what it's like to feel a kill me now, I'm so mad type of anger. Um, but the question I want to ask is, is this a righteous anger, right? Is this anger in any way justified in this situation? We see, we see in Scripture God gets angry. We see Jesus get angry. We even see um, in Psalm chapter 4, verse 4, he says, be angry and do not sin. So anger is not necessarily the, the issue here. Um, but I think Jonah's anger specifically is, is the issue. It's okay to be angry with God. In fact, I think God, God can handle it. God handles Jonah's anger flawlessly, really. But I think if we're going to be angry, if we're going to be angry with anything or if we're going to be angry with God, it's important that we let God know what we are angry with him about. Jonah does exactly that. Jonah tells God, this is why I'm angry. He says, are you angry about the plant? He says, Yeah. I'm angry about the plant. Um, our anger is going to reveal the idols that are in our heart. In this particular situation, uh, Jonah being angry over this plant or even angry over God saving the people of Nineveh is going to reveal, at least in Jonah's situation, this superiority or racism or, or whatever it is. His anger is revealing that. Because if you ask the question of Jonah's situation or of our own situation in our heart, is God angry at this thing? I think it's going to reveal something. Because if God is angry at that thing, it's not an idol. It's a righteous anger that we, that we ought to feel. But if not, and in Jonah's case, it wasn't, um, you've placed that thing that you're angry about above the reach of God and above the reach of the gospel on, of revealing that to you. So I, let me just say this. Um, I'm going to recommend to you that you tell God if you have an issue, if you, if you are angry with God, because I think what we see here is that God's going to teach you whether that anger is right or wrong, because he does care enough about us to teach us that. Um, when we get to, chapter, or to verse 10, we see that God is slow to anger, and he's teaching him this. He says that, I think he's teaching him that he cares more about people than the things that he's created. 
And apparently Jonah just doesn't know that message yet. And you, you already know this, but I'm not God. But if I was writing this story, it probably would read something like, and that morning God appointed a vine to grow up and choke out Jonah, that ungrateful, unloving, bitter crybaby. And he found a new prophet to, to do his will. But that's not what he does, right? Um, when we see in verse 10 and 11 the word pity, um, a synonym, if you will, of pity is compassion. Um, and I think compassion's a maybe a little bit easier word for us to comprehend when it comes to looking at people. Pity, I'm not saying it's a bad word, but I'm saying it may not convey the heart that God has for a lost soul the way I think compassion might. And so here's this real teaching moment. God says to Jonah, Jonah, I gave you this plant. Um, you didn't do anything for it. You didn't even ask for it. You didn't thank me for it. Um, you didn't care for it. And you had it for literally one day. Um, but you think it's okay for you to be mad when I take it away? And that's kind of the question that he's asking Jonah. And he still thinks that he's justified. But then he turns it again and he says, but I created those people in Nineveh. And I cared for them and I sustained them. And I want to show them my compassion. And I look at their helpless state and I want to save them. Am I not allowed to show that same compassion that I showed to you? I mean, you were so concerned with this plant. Should I not be concerned with the lives of these people that I want to save? Um, I think the question he's asking is, too, to Jonah anyway, um, why can't I change the way I feel like the way, you're, the way you did? Why can't I feel, change the way I feel from anger to compassion over these lost people? And the crux of this is that God brings him right to this point, and I think he's asking him, why don't you see people the way I see them? Why do you think you're so much better than them that, that I can't save them? And who gives you the right to view these people as worthless? Now, we're going to get to, to verse 11 here. This might be the strangest cliffhanger I've ever seen in, in all of Scripture. And believe me, I looked to see if maybe there was like an appendix or if anybody else had anything to say about this, but this story really drops off a cliff here. Um, <clears throat> the, best, uh, the best that I can, I can see um, from some commentators that I read is to say that there may be some figurative language here. That number of 120,000 who don't know their right from the left may be referring to, could be referring to children who don't, you know, that don't comprehend that. Maybe more likely is that there's lost people that, that just don't have any way. They don't, they don't know enough. They're not able to save themselves. They don't know enough, and, uh, and I have to step in to save them. There's some debate on that. I, I'm not convinced that that's the point. The cows, while hilarious and, and oddly confusing, also not the point. I think maybe, I like to think of it as God's humor. I mean, he's already used a bunch of humor with Jonah up to this point. But, you know, for God to say, you don't care about the people, but there's cows. I mean, you want me to wipe out the cows, Jonah? I mean, maybe, maybe that's where he's going with that. I don't really know. But um, I think... I think what's important here to know is that we've seen what God wants to reveal to us in this passage, and their story ends. Uh, like I said, at the end of that Marvel movie, that's like maybe two minutes worth of something, and then it's gone. And, and you see all he wants to reveal to us. But the fact that Jonah wrote this book um, himself and portrays himself this way, and then the, the book ends, I think it does indicate to us that God actually did get through to Jonah's heart. So... Um, What's God trying to teach Jonah here? I think it's, it's good for us to notice that 
God's pursuing Jonah's heart after the fact. After he's already gone through the fish, after Nineveh has already been saved, God goes back after him and chases down his heart. And I think that we're supposed to learn what he taught Jonah when he says, I want your heart to reflect my heart for these people. I think by God asking that question of Jonah at the end, I think that's, that's the message that he was conveying to Jonah. And I think it's the message that he's conveying to us. He says, I want you to see these people the way I see them. Because they're at odds with me, the creator of the universe. They're not at odds with you. Their issue is not with you. It's, it's with me. But I want to show them compassion and mercy, and I want you to do it. Um, another way for our heart, another word for our heart reflecting God's heart is sanctification. And you may know this, but sanctification is the process of being conformed to the image of Christ. In Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, it says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Um, Christ-like, being Christ-like, means being filled with patience and love and compassion and forgiveness towards the lost. Um, God was teaching Jonah who he was and the compassion that he has on these people. And he wants him to see the situation so that Jonah will follow suit and he will mimic God's behavior towards these lost people. This is, um, uh, we, we don't have kids, but as you would teach a child, you would want a child to do this. You would say, let me show you how to do this, how I do this, so you can learn and you can do this thing. Um, I'm going to turn the focus away from Jonah just a little bit uh, and maybe more broadly towards us. But if you wanted to teach somebody something, how wicked would it be if God had never bothered to show Jonah what this was about? If he, if he still called us to conform to his image and never explained to us what that looked like, never gave us a way to even accomplish that. It'd be like telling your kid, tie your shoe. And he says, I'm one, how do I tie my shoe? And you say, don't ask stupid questions, just do it. I mean, how, how would that go over for the kid? How would that go over for you? I mean, how evil would it be for God to say, conform to my image and then not give us the way to do that? But obviously he has. Um, when he says uh, in, in 1 Peter 1.16, it says, Be holy as I am holy. When God calls us to look like Christ, he's not up in heaven laughing at us try to figure it out. I mean, he, when he says that, he says, I've given you somebody. I gave you Jesus. I gave you Jesus Christ. I want you to look at him. I want you to take his example. Luke 19.10 says, For the Son of Man came to seek to save, and to save the lost. And in Hebrews 1.13, it says, he's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So God's saying, I created, I mean, I gave you Jesus Christ, who is the exact imprint of my nature. And he came to seek and to save the lost, and I want you to follow his example. Now, I think we know that we can't do that well on our own. We can't do it at all on our own. Um, but he's saying, I want you to cling to Jesus for your righteousness, and then I want you to mimic the way he views these people, the way he lived his life. Um, quick side note, if you don't know anything about how Jesus lived his life, um, it's here. We read about this in scripture. We can see Jesus Christ. We have a relationship with him, and we can know what God wants from us and the way he wants our heart to view people. God wants to pursue our heart and teach us, and he reveals himself to us through Jesus Christ, and he says, look at my son See my image, 
believe in him and look like me. And I think that's, that's the message that he's trying to teach to us and to Jonah. Um, I've already said it, but this, this chapter just closes really strangely. Um, the cows, right? I, I'm not really sure where, where we're going to go with that. But I think if we look at what we saw all of here in, in chapter 4, um, this really completes the whole rest of the book of Jonah. As I said earlier, maybe we could have closed the book after, after chapter 3 and said, hey, I mean, mission accomplished, right? But if we get just chapters 1 through 3, we get God sending Jonah to Nineveh, Jonah preaching a begrudging, half-hearted gospel message, and the whole city gets saved. And God doesn't have Jonah's heart. You've got Nineveh saved. You've got Jonah, a great preacher, with an ice-cold heart that God hates. And I think that's what we're seeing in chapter 4 when God pursues him. Because otherwise, it's just, just do it because I said so, Jonah. Just go, do what I told you to do, and the, and the rest is going to be up to me. And Jonah could have done that. In fact, he did do that um, and comes out with a cold heart on the other side of it. Psalm 51, 16, you might know this one. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. This is David talking. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. He's not just satisfied with our head knowledge and even our hands in this situation. He wants a heart. He wants a broken and a contrite heart. As we, as we turn to kind of close this out, I don't have questions, but if you're a note taker, I do want to maybe give you a few things to think about, um, <clears throat> maybe some areas that we need to assess in our life. Uh, I've been talking about head and heart and hands, and so if you either want to write those things down or at least just be thinking of them, this, this chapter does not specifically have any kind of call to action, but we, we do have is we have God revealing his character to us and his attitude towards people. But I think the action part comes, um, it's going to depend on, on where you find yourself. Whatever action comes next is going to depend on you personally and where you are. If you look at the whole arc of Jonah, it starts out with uh, Jonah having a ton of head knowledge. He was raised a Jew. Um, he knew all the right answers. He knew his, his Old Testament, I think, as well as anybody could or what God had revealed to him. Um, but he, his heart wasn't there. We even see he knows how to react and how to respond in good pressure situations, which is to pray. Um, but we see that that's almost like a head prayer and not a heart prayer. And then we also see, eventually, God does start to kind of shift his heart a little bit, and he goes and he uses his hands. He does the action. He goes to Nineveh. He does preach. People were saved. But it's not until chapter 4 that his heart follows where his head and his hands had once been. And that's God's pursuit of him and love to kind of follow through with that. So I want us to think about, um, are we giving just one of these three areas to God? Like, are we, are we giving two, maybe, like Jonah did? Or, or are we giving all three if you're only giving our head, um, if we're only giving our head, maybe there's, maybe you know a lot about Christianity. Maybe you were raised in the church. Maybe you, you know, um, you know what the Bible says, um, but it has not necessarily affected your heart in any way, in any real way. You might know a lot of the right answers, but it's not affecting you that way. I had an opportunity to uh, walk with a friend this week, and I was was kind of working through this uh, myself. But I just asked him. I said, 
he, he was talking about a scenario in his own life, and I said, does what you know about God and what the Bible says, what you know the Bible says, does that make an impact on how you live? He was talking about anxiety and, and feeling some anxiety about a situation. And he, you know, truthfully said, not really. I mean, I know it. I know, I know what the Bible says about it. And obviously it didn't for Jonah either, because he... I mean, he throws it in God's face. He says, I knew you were slow to anger, and I knew you were full of grace and mercy and compassion. Maybe you got the hands part, um, going through the right motions. It looks like the right thing on the outside, um, but there's no conviction there. there was, I, I don't think there was any conviction in Jonah when he was preaching in, in Nineveh, and I think we see that because of the way he reacts when it actually happens. When he says, repent, and they actually repent, and he comes out with anger on the other side, I think... Um, he might have just been going through some motions there. Now, the heart, obviously the heart is where, what, what, what God wants. And if God has your heart right now, maybe you're a new believer and all you have is heart. You don't know, you don't know a lot about God. You don't know about who he is. You don't know what it looks like to, to act like him yet. That may be the best way, you know, best place for you to be. But God having your heart, he's going to teach you about himself. He's going to reveal himself to you. And those actions are going to follow, right? Those actions are going to come out of a heart filled with love for who God is and a desire to conform to his image. So God wants our heart to be like his heart. Um, And I know that we see here and I know that I've seen elsewhere that God will use a head and hands and he, he does it all the time. But I do know that he wants our heart. And so I want us to consider if God actually has our heart and is he doing things in your life like he did in Jonah's to pursue your heart? Because I don't know that he's just going to be settled. I don't know that he's going to be satisfied with just a head and just hands. Um, Jonah, God was pursuing Jonah's heart to show him compassion for people. Um, he might be pursuing your heart in a similar way that he did to Jonah, um, putting him through the ringer, but maybe he's teaching you something else. I don't know what that other thing may be, but he does love you enough to care, to bend down and to enter into conversation and to teach you and to reveal himself to you so that your heart would reflect his. Um, I want to move to um, a time of communion um, together, but before we do that, I just want to invite you um, to spend some time contemplating these things. Maybe some, you know, think about what, where, where we may be hiding these areas from God, particularly our heart, like I say. Um, if you don't believe, if God doesn't have your heart at all, maybe you don't have any one of these three things, um, I want to give you an opportunity to confess that to the Lord. Um, he can handle that. Maybe you have anger towards God. He can handle that. But turn, turn from your, your anger or your rebellion from God. Believe that Jesus made a way for you to belong to God and allow God to be revealing himself and teaching you who he is through his son, Jesus Christ. Uh, let's pray. God, I'm grateful for um, this bizarre ending to this book. I'm grateful for the opportunity we have to catch a glimpse of the process that you went through to pull Jonah's heart back to you. I'm grateful that you have even put this in the canon of Scripture, that we, we can see a live example of what it looks like for us to maybe have our head in the game, maybe even our hands in the game, but to uh, be lacking heart. Um, I just pray, Father, that you would, you would let that simmer and let it sink into our hearts in such a way that we won't leave this room unchanged by it, 
Um, I know that, that I and others and, and all of us, we struggle with anger. Maybe we're struggling with um, what we've called racism, but just looking at others with any, any, any semblance of superiority towards them. God, I pray that you would break that in us. Um, if you have to put us in the belly of a fish, do it. But God, I just pray that we would soften our hearts towards the way you see people, the way you view the lost, um, the way you pursue us in love and compassion um, and take the opportunity and the time to teach us. Father, I pray that we would just embrace that, that we would embrace these teaching opportunities that you uh, orchestrate in our lives as the way you did in Jonah's. And Father, I pray that we would become a people that, um, that view the lost souls out there with as much grace and as mercy as you do, and that we would view ourselves and the gifts that you give to us as merely that and not entitlement. Um, nothing that sets us apart is different than any other lost soul um, that you desire to save. Jesus, we thank you for your work on the cross that allows us to even, uh, even pursue this, to even conform to your image. And it's in your name that we can pray this. Amen.